Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now, hit it sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. <laughs> Well, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? When you think of great years in rock and roll history, 1964, 1967, and 1976 all spring to mind. But one of the most important was just 20 years ago. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. We're going to take a trip back to 1991. Plus, we're going to review two albums released this year by the Smith Westerns and Wanda Jackson. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time to go back to 1991. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that, sad to say, is Brian <laughs> Adams with Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Takes you back to Kevin Costner in tights with Robin Hood. Remember oh, the video? man. That was the number one single, Greg, of 1991. If you only look on paper at the Billboard charts and, and the sales numbers, number one single of the year, Brian Adams, does that tell the story of a year? Film critics, Greg, have the auteur theory, where you have one great director, uh, an Alfred Hitchcock or Martin Scorsese, and his style is such that it, it runs through the canon of work, and, and that's how film is dealt with over mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40, 50 year chunks of history. I think rock critics have the significant year theory. 1964, British invasion, right. explosion of music that changes the world. 1967, summer of love, psychedelic eruption. 76 into 77, punk rock, Ramones in the U.S., the Sex Pistols in the U.K. And I think that there's, among a certain age of rock listener, a notion that Nothing that historical, that sea-changing has happened in the modern era. Nothing since the 70s. To which you and I respond, 
nonsense. 1991, we were both early in our careers as professional rock critics. I don't think we saw it at the time, but as we're looking back from this point in history, 20 years on, saying, wow, look at how much has changed in music since. But look at how the things that happened in that era are still influencing music today. On our show alone, recent guests Teenage Fan Club and Super Chunk were both talking about 1991. Both of them released major albums that year, and both of them are still going strong now. So we're going to focus on this key year during this show. But the story isn't necessarily on the charts. Mm -hmm. Tell us, what actually was selling in 91? Well, it's extraordinary, Jim. This was the era of the blockbuster album, and we had some blockbusters. First and foremost, let us not forget Guns N' Roses put out... Not one, but two albums that year. Two Illusions. Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, both selling over 10 million copies each. We look back on that now and we go, how did that happen? We had Garth Brooks kicking off the whole country pop phenomenon that year, the Haddocks, Garth Brooks being first and foremost among them, selling 18 million copies of his debut album, Ropin' the Wind. We had U2 with a landmark album for them. You and I both feel it's their best album. Octung Baby came out that year. R.E.M. with a really fine record, Out of Time. We had Boys to Men with Cooley High Harmony kicking off the R&B vocal group era. We had Metallica making the album that a lot of people think they jumped the shark with. Yeah. They went from being thrash metal progenitors in the 80s to making the self-titled Black Album in 91. And then we had the debuts. Let's not forget Spin Doctors that year. Everybody was into the jam band scene at that. I remember being around a lot of young men and women at that time wearing a lot of patchouli (laughs) during that era. Pocket Full of Kryptonite was their soundtrack. So it was a big year for blockbuster albums, as you said, Jim. When we're looking about where is music today, what are the sounds that influence music most for 2011 back in 1991? I think first and foremost we have to look at the repercussions raised by that little band from Seattle, Nirvana, with the release of the Nevermind record in that year. It's really important to consider what was on the charts at the time. We were talking about the rise of pop rap. We had the likes of Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer dominating the pop charts. We had the hair metal era, which was still in full flower, with bands like Motley Crue and Poison. That was what represented mainstream rock at the well, time. Well, and, and Michael Jackson, the black or white single, the bad album, was still huge. Sure, and, and, and there were actually articles being written by some of our peers at that time, Jim, that rock is dead. It's yeah. no longer going to be a commercial force. What was interesting about the Nirvana thing... A lot of people saw it as a beginning. I really saw it as a culmination of what had been going on in the independent rock scene in the 80s and specifically in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. This whole idea of quote-unquote grunge, a term coined by the founders of Sub Pop Records, Bruce Pavitt in particular, talking about the idea of the guitars and this distorted sound, this dirty sound that owed a lot to 60s and 70s garage rock, early heavy metal, some of the independent rock music that came up in the 80s bringing that sound into a mainstream audience, a mainstream sound. You know, when I talked to Kurt Cobain back in the late 80s when he was just starting out with Nirvana, he basically said, you know, we're just a tribute band. We are owning up to the bands that influenced us, and some of them may not be cool. Heck, I liked Kiss when I was growing up. I liked Alice Cooper. I'm paying homage to some of them, as well as some of those cool underground bands of the 80s, combining the melody of those 70s mainstream bands with some of the dirtiness and the grunge, quote-unquote, of those 80s indie bands.
Nirvana kind of was a culmination of that. On top of that, you had this extraordinary songwriter in Kurt Cobain, who had a melodic sense and who had a gift for putting lyrics together in a unique way. The Bleach album, he told me, was basically just an angry kid ranting at the world. With Nevermind, he started writing poetry. That record was a culmination of two or three years of journal-keeping and his outside reading. He was heavily into William Burroughs at the time, the whole cut-up technique of piecing together seemingly unrelated images. So with Nevermind, the band really put itself on the map, but it didn't know so at the time. It decided, you know, we're going to go into the studio with Butch Vig, based in Madison, Wisconsin, and make basically our second record. The label at the time for Nirvana, Geffen, said, hey, hey, if we sell 50,000 copies, this thing's going to be a huge success. There were no great expectations for this record. Nobody saw it coming. Anybody who says they did is full of it. You always tell that story about seeing the band at Metro just as it was about to explode in, in what would be called in a documentary film later on, The Year Punk Broke. Yeah, I mean, here they were in front of a few hundred people at most, and they were the opening band. People were there to see the headliners, 11th Dream Day, a band that actually was on a major label at the time. Cobain and the band opens with a 40-minute set and just completely tear apart the songs and then tear themselves apart in the process. Cobain, I use this image a lot, but it just sticks in my mind where he seemed to be in the jaws of an invisible giant Rottweiler who was just slinging him around the stage willy-nilly. And I go, this man seems possessed. Who are these guys? We need to yeah. we need to find out more about this band. They really laid the groundwork for what they would do later with that tour. And it was interesting to watch. The big transformation for me, Jim, with Nirvana was they'd gone through a series of drummers. When Dave Grohl finally was recruited as the drummer in that band, he'd been recruited from that Washington, D.C. hardcore outfit, Scream, that really was the final piece there. The power of that drummer combined with Cobain's songwriting gave that band an undeniable force that when people did see them live, it was like, wow. It almost made the record seem quaint by comparison. We are talking 1991, a watershed year in the history of rock and roll. Greg, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that no one who plays rock and roll at any point in the future is not going to owe some small debt to Nirvana. The same way you can say that every rock band post-64 owed something to the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. Overnight, Nirvana remakes the music industry in 1991. Michael Jackson is knocked off the charts. Nirvana is on the charts. MTV stops playing hair metal and... The floodgates open. The major labels descend en masse hmm. on Seattle. Also Chicago and New York and, and, and Texas. They begin signing the weirdest bands. You know, the bottle surfers wind up on a major label and the Jesus Lizard. Crazy stuff happens. But it's not only confined to the U.S. In the U.K., a very similar movement was happening. You can call it the shoegaze movement, so named because a lot of the bands weren't very flamboyant on stage. They stood and they stared at their their feet. What it was was modern psychedelic rock. Peers of Cobain, same age, kids in their early 20s, influenced strongly by their parents' Beatles, Stones, psychedelic 60s record collections. It had started a few years earlier with the Jesus and Mary chain paving the way for these bands, but a whole class of them comes up. Slow dive. Wonderful, dreamy space pop. Blur, 
slightly more upbeat with their first album coming out in 91. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is just another one of those Manchester bands doing that vaguely trippy dance thing, but a band that would prove to have much greater depth to it. Ride is in between its first album and its second album in 1991. They're the band that everybody is putting its money on being able to break into the U.S. They did some great tours, didn't really happen. And then, of course, My Bloody Valentine. These bands have an influence that far outweighs their album sales. In the case of Nirvana, the album sales were significant. In the case of My Bloody Valentine, they were not. This was a group that was started by Kevin Shields. The early My Bloody Valentine records in the late 80s are not extraordinary. This is a band that's kind of goth-like yeah, yeah. and then picks up on the what the Jesus and Mary Chain are doing. They get a little more aggressive. But round about 89, 90, two things happen. Kevin Shields discovers a new way of playing guitar. It involves a Yamaha effects pedal, which has this wonderful backwards reverb setting, and it involves the surf guitar trick of the whammy bar mm-hmm. or the tremolo arm. He doesn't play it the way people would at the end of a chord to kind of drag out the sound. He keeps his little finger wrapped around it. On every downstroke, he learned to play guitar listening to the remote, so it's all downstrokes. He is moving with that tremolo bar going in and out of tune, putting the guitar sound through the backwards reverb. This was a sound he discovered, by the way, while taking entirely too much ecstasy, he now (laughs) admits. So it was the combination of this psychedelic drug and this psychedelic sound makes an album called Loveless, which, you know, if I had a dime for every musician who said, uh, you know, that remains to me the greatest rock album I've ever heard, Kevin Shields has never been able to make the follow-up album to Loveless. When I think of 1991, I think of how I still feel like I'm hungover, experiencing bed spins. No matter what time of the day it is or what condition I'm in, you listen to this album and you feel high. That's the magic of 1991 and the best album of 1991 as far as I'm concerned. Here's the opening track, Only Shallow, from Loveless by My Bloody Valentine on Sound Opinions.
That was only shallow by My Bloody Valentine from their 1991 album, Loveless, on Sound Opinions. Greg and I are going to continue talking about this landmark year in rock history in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later on, we'll review a new album by the queen of rockabilly, Wanda Jackson. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis, and we've been talking about one of the most significant years in rock and roll, 1991. Twenty years later, we're still talking about the artists, albums, and events of 91 as major influences on music and the music industry. Case in point, the beginning of Lollapalooza. Perry Farrell's brainchild as kind of a farewell tour to his uh, major band out of Los Angeles, Jane's Addiction. The band was breaking up. He said, let's take a few of our friends. Let's do this tour across 22 cities as kind of a farewell. I don't even think Perry Farrell could have envisioned what a franchise this was going to turn into. That tour that year included Jane's Addiction as the headliner, A Living Color and Susie and the Banshees opening up. Some smaller level bands, the Rollins Band was opening. Then there was Ice-T as sort of a token rap act, kind of a radical move, basically a a rock-intensive tour with a rap act on it. So Ice-T was there not only in his hip-hop guys, but also with his heavy metal band, Body Count. And then, of course, we had Nine Inch Nails. So an eclectic group of performers, nobody really knew how this was going to do. It ended up doing really well. It started selling out amphitheaters around the country and made a lot of money to the point where they said, hey, let's do this again. Within the next couple of years, it was making $20 million a year on the road at least. It created a genre of music, alternative rock. And there was an accompanying radio format that was spawned as a result of that. You know, Greg, in the underground world, the fanzine world, the indie rock world, there was a lot of cynicism and sarcasm about the modern rock radio format and this new genre, alternative rock. I was not so jaded. You know, when I went to Lollapalooza in 91, to me, it it was usually encouraging. It was as if all of the separate misfit tables in high school had suddenly gotten together and realized we have more in common than we have separating Mm -hmm. us. 
And the thing we have in common is is we can join together and all be freaky here in this safe space and the heck with all the bullies in the outside world. Suddenly we're coming together and, and there was a cross-pollination that to me was really encouraging before the marketing and the merchandising set in. Well, the marketing and merchandising was absolutely there from the get-go. It's just that nobody realized it quite yet. I think the, the initial year, there was a sort of a magical quality to it, as you said. After this, you can remember the 90s were dominated by these touring festivals, whereas now we're in the era of the destination festival, the one city. Everybody comes from around the world to that one place to see a big rock concert, whether it's Coachella uh, on the West Coast or Bonnaroo in Tennessee or Lollapalooza now, a destination festival yeah, the, the, in the, Chicago. The, 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 corporate festival now here in the center of Chicago, which has nothing to do with what Lollapalooza was in 91. Exactly. But the whole idea of this touring festival uh, dominated the 90s. We had the Horde Festival for the jam band scene. We had Lilith for the female singer-songwriter scene. We had Ozfest, of course, for the for the metal scene with uh, the godfather Ozzy Osbourne presiding over it. So there was a lot of money to be made. But let's look at the music for just a split second here, because I think that was the important take out of this. Again, much like Nirvana and grunge, it was really not a beginning so much as a culmination of a music that had been underneath the mainstream radar for the better part of the decade, really since the punk era began. There was no outlet for that music. There was no radio play. There was no major touring circuit. For 15 years, bands were struggling to get an, an, an audience that was bigger than maybe a 1,000 people filling a major club or, around the country. And now here it was, an opportunity for the butthole surfers of all yeah. people to play in front of 25,000 people and get signed to a major label deal. Now, people may argue later on, is that such a good thing that bands like the Butthole Surfers and the Melvins and Urge Overkill were getting signed to major labels as a result of this? But there's no doubt it did create the notion that, hey, there was a big audience for this music. It's just that the mainstream means of gauging it weren't capable. I mean, the billboard charts weren't really reflecting it. The radio airplay wasn't really reflecting it. Lollapalooza made the corporate big shots pay attention to this music, and it was a double-edged sword because initially it was a good idea, but I think five or six years later, Jim, I think the uh, the air sort of went out of the balloon when you saw the bands like Bush and Seven Mary Three and Candlebox, these sort of second-generation grunge or alternative bands dominating the charts. But it's interesting, Jim. I think the one band from this whole sort of alternative Lollapalooza Nation scene of the early 90s. The one band that had real longevity and is still going today is, is Pearl Jam. Ten, the debut album by Pearl Jam, came out in 1991, but it really had its impact in 92. 92 is the year Pearl Jam is playing on Lollapalooza, the second year of Lollapalooza, and that album is exploding as they're touring the country. They're really like the REM or the U2 of the alternative era mm-hmm. in terms of becoming an ongoing monolith. listening to Sound Opinions, and 20 years on, we are looking back at the music of 1991. Greg, I think for the most part, we've been focusing on the rock world, but we can't forget that rap was really the dominant sound in pop music at the time. And in particular, 91 was the year that gangster rap really broke into the mainstream. You know, we had had acts that were proto what would come to be called gangster rap, Greg, in the late 80s. You know, something like what KRS-One was doing with Boogie Down Productions before he became a real educator. He was There was a lot of violence on those early mm-hmm. records. But it was with this band from Compton, NWA, that gangster rap really became a huge commercial force. In fact, the one that would dominate hip-hop for the next two and a half decades. Mm-hmm. N.W.A. early on had a political consciousness, largely because of Ice Cube. When you're talking about Straight Outta Compton, you listen to that record, and the violence that exploded in the wake of the Rodney King verdict wouldn't have surprised anybody. You know, the tensions between the African-American community and, and the police in Los Angeles, 
that album is a classic for that. But Ice Cube left and went on to put out a great record in 91 himself. But N.W.A. without Ice Cube, led by Dr. Dre and Easy e to some extent, uh, who was going to Republican fundraisers at the time, mm-hmm. put out an album called Eiffel Forzagen. That wasn't the real title. The real title, you had to hold the CD cover up to the mirror, and you got it. Well, well let me just read you the lead I wrote the week that it came out. This is an album of hate-filled songs that glorify gang rape and beating women to death, an album so nihilistic that its lyrics brag about making money from these topics. I was physically ill listening to Eiffel Forsagen. The artistry that Ice Cube had brought, the energy was gone. These guys, obviously, th- this crew, there were some, some good rappers in there, and Dr. Dre had a certain sound. But... They were bragging about mistreating women. They were bragging about uh, dealing drugs. They were bragging about uh, being violent, often for no purpose whatsoever. And it was all about the money, and there was no moral core whatsoever, much less politics. The album drops as the bombs are dropping on Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And I remember that weird disconnect of Gulf War number one and and this, this other album being on the top of the charts. That was the story. It debuted at number two and then shot to number one on the album charts in its second week. Nobody saw that coming. It was as big a shock as Nirvana had been. Why did that happen? Billboard had shifted to a new method of measuring album sales. Previously, retailers reported the figures that they sold. Mm -hmm. And some retailers might not have been all that honest. Mm. They might have said we were selling 50 copies of Guns N' Roses when really they moved 25. There was all sorts of speculation for years about that. Now with SoundScan, the actual barcode registering the sale measured the album sale and we had real numbers. And what the success of NWA's album said was that this is not just a phenomenon in the black community, gangster rap, as School E.D. or, or KRS-One had been. This is attacking, you know, the malls of, of America. This, this is white kids listening to this music and loving it. All the miles and running, empty when I hope to gun it. You want me to deal with the situation that is done it. Since the stereotype, I'm going to take a stand. And if you try to stop me, I don't give a damn. Chances are usually not good. Because I'm first with my hands on a hot hood. Getting jacked by the you-know-who. When I'm like a white, the capacity is true. But not alone with three more brothers. I mean, street brothers not wearing my jacket because we ain't going out like suckers. They have to take our heads for what we said in the past. And that's the reason why I ran this running fast. I didn't stutter when I said, forget the police. Then we call for a brother to get peace. Now we're broken and can't be fixed. Cause police are getting from the ghetto don't make so. Now I'm creeping through the fall. Running like a demon. See, I'm at a slight jaw. So for now, pack the gun and hold it in the air. Cause MC ran out a hundred miles of running. Well, there's no doubt that it was a hugely influential record. They were the most controversial group of the time, and that encouraged a lot of underage kids to want this record because, you know, there was dirty stuff on there, and I got to hear it. But there were a lot better gangster records in that era, and I think the big failing of N.W.A. was once Ice Cube left the fold, they really didn't have a storyteller. Ice Cube's solo record that year, Death Certificate, I think, was far superior to this record. I think Ice-T's record that year, OG, Original Gangster, was far superior. Again, a superior lyricist. Well, and the album sales edged out a far more lucrative strain of hip-hop, where you had people like De La Soul and Mm -hmm. the Beastie Boys of Paul's Boutique doing something much more creative, much more psychedelic, much more in line with the shoegazers, really, over in the U.K. There was absolutely great hip-hop going on in 91, though, Jim. I think uh, not only in those bands that you just cited, but over in the U.K., we had the beginnings of the first true indigenous U.K. hip-hop. I'm talking about the first Massive Attack record, which came out that year, Blue Lines. This was a trio of DJs slash producers, mixers, 
who was funded in large part by Nana Cherry, who was a big hit maker in the UK at the time. Yeah. And she said, you know, you guys got to make a record. The record she ended up financing was called Blue Lines and a landmark record. One of the engineers on that record was a guy named Jeff Barrow, who went on to form the trip-hop band Portishead. This entire movement out of Bristol, England, began with Massive Attack. It led to landmark albums later on in the decade by Portishead and Tricky. And incredibly influential on people like Moby. His play record was very much influenced by what Massive Attack was doing a decade earlier. It all began with this uh, 91 record. And what they did was take the aesthetic of hip-hop, the sampling aesthetic, and combined it with elements of dub reggae and dance music and created a new sound. It was down-tempo, ethereal, uh, neo-psychedelic, very atmospheric, very much introspective, the kind of stuff you would tend to listen to more on headphones than out on a dance floor, although it could work equally well there because the bass lines were pretty big. But again, much more inward-looking music and beautifully evocative stuff on, on the Blue Lines record and creating an entire new movement of music that year with this one album that would go on to influence basically any kind of dance or hip-hop music that was released in the U.K. over the next two decades, as well as in the U.S., so the song I want to go out with that really says 1991 to me is Safe From Harm, from Massive Attack. Sharon Nelson on lead vocals. They were bringing in a lot of guest vocalists on these records. And they were also reaching outside the normal funk and R&B sampling sources to reach out to jazz records, for example. On this record, you're going to hear samples of Billy Cobham and John McLaughlin. So it's Massive Attack with Safe From Harm from the Blue Lines album on Sound Opinions. That was Safe From Harm by Massive Attack from the 1991 record Blue Lines, my favorite track from a landmark year in rock and roll. Coming up, Jim and I are going to review new records by the Smith Westerns and Wanda Jackson. First, we want to remind you to be a critic on the air. Got a sound opinion? Give us a call, 888-859-1800. We're going to be back with more sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Yes, the trouble in the animation ain't I was, I was, I was looking back to see 
if you were looking back at me to see me looking back at you. I was, I, 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 I was looking back to see if you were looking back at me to see me looking back at you. Back to Sound Opinions. That was a song called Still New by a band named the Smith Westerns from their second album, Die It Blonde. Greg, this is a Chicago trio. A bunch of young kids came together in high school in Chicago, one of our most prestigious uh, public schools, Northside College Prep, generally known kind of as the math geek school here <laughs> in Chicago. But these two brothers, Cullen and Cameron Omari, and their friend, Max Kakashek came together at Northside, began making music inspired by their parents' collections of 60s records. They loved Nuggets, Lenny Kay's classic garage rock compilation. They loved the Back from the Grave series of obscure mid-60s one-hit psychedelic rock wonders, and they began to make this music on their own. A fine debut record in 2007, self-titled after the band, The Smith Westerns. Very lo-fi, very rough, raw, and raunchy. And now, their second album, with a lot more production polish, is coming out on the Fat Possum label. And it's getting them a lot of attention nationwide. Pitchfork has been raving about them. Rolling Stone did a little feature on them. These guys are building a buzz that belies their young age. We are going to dive into this record and tell you what we think about it when we give our review. But first, let's hear the single. It's a song called Weekend by the Smith Westerns from Diet Blonde on Sound Opinions. Normal to go through life 
That is Weekend from the Smith Western's Diet Blonde on Sound Opinions. As you said, Jim, a young band still not of legal drinking age when they recorded this album. <laughs> and the one thing I like about it, uh, among many things, is that they didn't shy away from that innocence. You know, we're young guys. We're, we're still making our way in the world. We're not going to sound like we're, you know, these big, sophisticated woman killers out here. We're, we're chasing these women. We worship them. We want them on a kind of a, a pure level that you don't often hear in pop music anymore. You know, when they sing a line like, I want you to feel what it's like to be loved all night long, imagine that line being sung by somebody like R. Kelly, for example, and the implications that would be underlined in that, in that line. And when, when these guys sing it, it sounds absolutely chaste, absolutely innocent, like they do, in fact, want to make this woman feel loved in a kind of almost platonic way, like they wanna, they're very protective about it. I love that sweetness, that innocence. You know, in that respect, they come out of a very strong and powerful tradition in the Midwest of power pop. Chicago bands like Green and Material Issue and Let's Go Out to the Raspberries in Cleveland, you know, kind of purveying this sound, this glorious pop music about girls, about innocence, and then factor in the musical detail, the guitars especially, the counterpoint melodies against those sigh, big choirs of vocal melodies. It's a beautiful sound. The one thing about this album that is a little bit disappointing, the songs are all in the same kind of pocket. The drumming is almost insignificant in a lot of these songs. There's not a lot of drive, a lot of up-tempo stuff. But what they do, they do very well. And I think it's a very promising second album for these guys. I'm looking forward to more. On the basis of just the beauty of those melodies, I'm going to give it a buy it rating. Well, buy it, burn it, trash it is the scale, Greg. And I was kind of torn between a buy it and a uh, a burn it. I got to admire their songwriting chops. These guys really can sing. They can really write songs. They're young. They have lots of places to go. They're reminding me, though, of another band from Chicago also mining the 60s, mm-hmm. who debuted with a big splash a couple of years ago on Capitol Records, the Red Walls, remember? Right, right. And then self-destructed immediately because they had nowhere to go. I wish that there was a little less polish on this record. It is a little bit too much pop finesse. Mm-hmm. There was a little too much lo-fi on that 2009 debut. Somewhere in the middle is where the Smith Westerns should be going. However, yeah, what the heck. It really makes me smile every time I hear this record. I will give it a buy it and say, next time, boys, put a little more grunge in the mix, okay? That is Wanda Jackson with a track from her new album, a cover of a Bob Dylan song, Thunder on the Mountain. The new record is called The Party Ain't Over. Wanda Jackson, the uh, original rockabilly queen, I mean, she was one of the few female rockabilly artists in the 50s, a contemporary of people like Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis. She went on tour with Elvis in the mid-50s. When she was still in her teens, she was an opening act. She dated Elvis for a little while. Elvis pushed her into rockabilly, said, you know, you're, you're a country artist, but you can do this too. And, and she took him up on it, made a series of terrific records in the late 50s, singles that were sort of be proto-feminist anthems, I think a precursor of Riot Girl in, in a lot of ways, you know, standing up for herself in, in these songs against boys who would do her wrong, a lot of attitude, something you didn't often hear from country singers at that time, certainly country female singers, but she brought it to the party in the rockabilly world and straddled those two worlds throughout her career. When rockabilly sort of died out, she was making hits as a country act uh, well into the 70s. Faded away, she's now 73. Jack White, a huge fan, the co-founder of the White Stripes, has been performing her songs in concert for over a decade and is a king of these sort of uh, reclamation projects, if you will. He likes to seek out his heroes and heroines and and work with them. He did it with Loretta Lynn back in 2004 and produced her comeback record, Van Leer Rose, and now he's doing it with Wanda Jackson on The Party Ain't Over. Jim and I are going to review the record in a minute, but first we're going to play another song from it. It's her cover of Johnny Kidd's Shaken All Over from The Party Ain't Over by Wanda Jackson on Sound Opinions. When you lose it, right up close to me 
That is Wanda Jackson performing Johnny Kidd's Shaken All Over from the new Jack White-produced album, The Party Ain't Over, on Sound Opinions. Greg, 50 years of shredding her vocal cords, and Wanda Jackson sounds surprisingly good. You know, the voice is still there. It always had that kind of little girl quality. That is not the problem on this most disappointing of reclamation projects, as you said earlier. One problem is song selection. I don't know what Jack White was thinking. There are some real stinkers on here. There is a Calypso throwaway, rum and Coca-Cola, that is just downright painful. But also, knowing that Ms. Jackson was born again in 1972 and spent whatever time she spent in the music world over the last three decades was in gospel. Mm -hmm. To have her sing a song like Amy Winehouse's You Know I'm No Good, she cannot relate to this song. She brings nothing to this song. It's a complete mismatch. That's problem number one. Problem number two is Jack White, king of the less is more production. Mm. Spartan, stripped down, Meg White's drums, super simple, my guitar, that's it. That's the White Stripe sound. He does more is more here. Suddenly he's Phil Spector. What's all this keyboard tinkling and backing choirs? And Wanda Jackson, with that voice, surprisingly intact after 50 years, you're going to put vocal effects on Mm. Wanda Jackson? What are you doing, Jack? I'm not blaming Wanda Jackson for this mess of an album, but on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, Jack White dropped the ball. It's a trash it record. Yeah, it's a disappointment, Jim. I think White is the problem here for me as well. I think on Van Leer Rose with uh, Loretta Lynn, he kind of left her alone, said, okay, just be Loretta Lynn. I'll give you some some backing arrangements, but it was pretty much uh, Loretta Lynn's party. Here, I think he imposes some modern touches. He tries to bring Wanda Jackson into the 21st century with some modern production. You know, I'm not going to do a retro record. I'm going to I'm going to play against type here and I'm going to add some touches. I'm going to have a record an Amy Winehouse song. I'm going to have a record a relatively new Dylan song. I'm going to add horns. Why in God's name would you want to add mariachi horns to Wanda Jackson? I don't know, but it sounds cheesy. It sounds very gimmicky to me. The vocal effects, I think, are terrible. I disagree with you. I don't think her voice sounds all that natural and all that good on most of this record. The one exception is the last song on the record. She covers Jimmy Rogers' Blue Yodel Number no. 6, and it's basically just her voice and Jack White's guitar, and I'm going, this should have been the record right here. He lit me this morning, midnight was turning day. Yeah, he left me this morning, midnight was turning day. I didn't have no blues till my good man went away. She sounds sassy. I hear a little bit of that slyness back in the voice. It sounds terrific. I wish the rest of the record had been like that. Unfortunately, it's not. I would say burn that one song and trash the rest. So that is a trash it from me and a burn it for one song from Greg Cott for Wanda Jackson. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from former Bell and Sebastian band member Isabel Campbell and her new partner, Mark Lanigan, formerly of The Screaming Trees. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our producer, Robin Lynn, she was still in grammar school in 1991. Our other producer, Jason Saldana, he was just starting high school. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, he was way behind the curve. He was still going to see Color Me Bad in concert. sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Jim and Greg, this is Pierre from Brooklyn. 
I love your show. I listen to it all the time. But you guys got to stop saying, buy it, burn it, trash it. Burn it is really offensive to me. I'm a, I'm a musician. Um, I don't. I think you guys need to take a position on burning CDs. It's, it's stealing. There's really no other way around it. It's kind of like if you guys had a cooking show and you were, like, describing a recipe and you said, you know, we love these onions, but not that much. So next time you go to the store, you should just steal them. Anyway, besides that, love your show. Keep the good work. Bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Michael Newsad calling from Macomb, Illinois. And I was listening with intent about the history of hip-hop. And there was a major void in your history, and that would be public enemy. Uh, when I was in college, P.E. helped us understand uh, the voice of black America in, in a way that we hadn't gotten from any of those other gangster rapper types. So I just wanted to put my two cents in about the fact that P.E. was a really important influence in my life. And I'm pleased to listen every week. And thanks very much. Hello, Jim and Greg. This is Jeff from Minneapolis. And I'd like to leave a message about uh, your piece on Electric Wizard. Um, I was really surprised to see that you guys covered an underground band, and I was fortunate enough to see them two or three times when they were in the States and got to hang out with them, and they are indeed the heaviest band in the universe. Um, it's also glad that you mentioned that Dope Throne is most likely their best record, but also the record Come My Fanatics is awesome. So thanks a lot, longtime listener and uh, first-time message giver. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Marty from Chicago. I'm just calling to wonder why you guys haven't mentioned the passing of Trish Kanan of the avant-garde pop band broadcast. They were a bit like Stereo Lab, but with a more psychedelic kind of sound. They were an important part of indie rock world for the last 15 years. But I'd throw it out there, guys. But love the show. Keep it up. Thank you. Bye bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on sound opinions, call 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. I'm sorry, I can't operate on that vehicle. But doctor, you took an oath. That RV, it's my son's RV. Oh, doctor, isn't there anything you can do? I'm not a miracle worker, Sheila. I'm an RV surgeon, trained to save the lives of large injured recreational vehicles, which is definitely a real profession. When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates covered subject to policy terms.